Well, as I said in the beginning, we have a nice new memorial here in the church. It's Mary, mother of the church. And I think with this feast, I would imagine Mary's, who she is for us as uh, members of the church, as, as baptized Catholics, it comes to a fullness and a completion. Uh, if you look at all the feasts of Mary across the year, um, before this one was instituted, it was like, okay, they're all getting at who she is for us, but there was something missing, <clears throat> and it was it was really this one, and I think that's probably why Pope Francis said, well, let's institute this, this uh, memorial right now just to kind of round out all of the various aspects of the identity of our, our Blessed Mother. And so here's Mary, Mother of the Church. We see in our first reading from Acts that we just celebrated Pentecost yesterday, and but we see this scene right before the day of Pentecost where the disciples are praying. They're praying along with Mary. And so it's Mary's prayers that bring into birth the church that was that was born on the day of Pentecost. And uh, so she is the mother of the church through her prayer. She's the mother of church in so many ways. Obviously, she gave birth to our Savior. She gave birth to the body of Christ. All right, and we, mystically speaking, are the body of Christ. Uh, she gave birth to the church in as much as she yielded of her own free will to God's plan as she stood by the cross of Christ. Okay, so when she stood by the cross of Christ, seeing her own son suffer, uh, she wasn't like, oh, I don't want this to happen. No, why is this happening? Okay, she was, she, uh, was resigned to God's will and understood that it was for the salvation of the world. And so she's the mother of the church in that sense as well, too. And then before Pentecost, as we see in our first reading, and something interesting here in our gospel today, there is uh, this, this line where Jesus says to John, so if you've got the famous image of Mary and John standing by the cross of our Lord, and he says to John, in reference to his mother, he says, my disciple, basically, behold your mother. No, I'm sorry. He goes, yes, he says, behold your mother. But this, but I think what he says to Mary is actually more telling because he turns to her and he says, woman, behold your son. Okay. And that word woman, uh, is really important. It's really important. It, it, it might, you just might read it and kind of just goes through, you know, one ear and out the other, one eye and out the other, and, and you don't notice it. But it's, I think it's a very important illusion. It alludes to, or makes reference to the woman who we see in the Garden of Eden. Okay. So before chapter four, I believe, of Genesis, Eve is not referred to by name. She's not called Eve. She's referred to as the woman. Okay. And so we've got this link between Eve and Mary with that phrase, the woman. The other thing that I think of, now this is my own opinion, uh, and I'm basing it on, on very well-established ancient testimony and tradition, is that John, he wrote the Apocalypse first before he wrote the Gospel of John. So probably in the early 90s, under the reign of Domitian, John was exiled to Patmos, uh, the island of Patmos, and he had the vision uh, of the Apocalypse that we see the last book of the New Testament. Um, and he had that vision, and yet he was released 
And then he went back to ministering in Asia Minor and Ephesus and all those churches in that area. And that's when the um, disciples and the different members of the churches at the time came to him and they said, you know, you're about to die. You're like one of the last apostles. Write, you know, write like a sort of a final testimony for us. And then that's when he wrote the Gospel of John. Okay. And so he wrote the Gospel of John after he wrote the Apocalypse. Why that's important, I think, in this is because when we look at the Apocalypse, you see an image of the woman. Okay. And she's clothed with the sun and the moon is under her feet and she has a crown of 12 stars. And she's contrasted over against the whore of Babylon. Kind of a nasty, <laughs> really nasty image. The whore of Babylon, okay? Don't want to be the whore of Babylon. Don't want to be associated with her, right? And then as opposed to the whore of Babylon, you've got this other woman. And both of these women represent two different societies in the world and all throughout the history of salvation. On the one hand, you have the woman who represents the chosen people of God, the sum total of all of those who have been called and, and destined by God to attain salvation. On the other hand, you have the whore of Babylon who stands for all of those who will not attain to salvation, all of those who are, who are worldly, okay, who seek their own will before that of God, who love themselves even unto contempt of God, whereas you have those who are represented by the woman is all of those who love God more than themselves. Okay, so that's those are the two cities that St. Augustine speaks about that go through all out history. Uh, the thing is, though, is both of those cities are represented by real women. So there's this connection between a real woman. It's Mary who represents the church, the, the, the corporate body of the elect. And there was another woman, from what I understand, when I read the commentaries and histories and whatnot, it was actually who, who represents the whore of Babylon as a real woman at that time and, and says that they, a lot of scholars think that the whore of Babylon, as you see it, this image and this, this metaphor is based on this woman who was the uh, queen, empress of the Roman Empire under Claudius. So Claudius was the emperor just before Nero. And uh, he was a, he was a, a kind of a, an interesting figure. He was a decent guy. He was pretty smart, um, but he had a bad uh, deformity in his body. He limped, and so he was kind of you know they didn't they didn't think he was destined for much. But actually, he was a really smart guy, and he eventually became the emperor and really kind of cleaned things up after Caligula did a decent job. But unfortunately, his wife despised him. And she would actually go down to, in the middle of the night, she'd go down to the brothels, okay, and just act like a common harlot. Here's the empress of the Roman Empire. Here, <laughs> she's going down to the brothels, acting like a common harlot. Really horrible, uh, thing. But in any event, you know, here you have two real women. And Mary representing the church. And the church being imaged forth in the person of Our Lady. And it's referred to as the woman. Okay, So, you know, you see this this apocalyptic image of the woman, and you're wondering, who's the woman? Who's the woman? Well, John gets off the island of Patmos, and he goes and he writes the Gospel of John. And Mary is specifically identified as the woman in the passage that we hear today. So, I think the, the message for us is a lot of things. But what reverence ought we to have for the church? Okay, the same kind of reverence and respect and veneration and love that we have for Mary should also be given 
to the church. So important. Okay, never to despise the church. And the church is easy to despise, right? Because it's full of sinners, like me and like you. And so it's really easy to take the church for granted and to kind of blow it off and separate yourself from it. And that's the danger, okay? Because you get tripped up on the human aspect of the church. But the church has been gifted by God with an intrinsic holiness that is uh, inalienable, can't be taken from her. And that holiness is there because of the Holy Spirit from the day of Pentecost. That holiness is there because of the sacraments that are holy no matter what. That holiness is there because of the presence of Christ in her midst, because uh, Jesus will never abandon her. And there's always always guaranteed to be a core group of people in the church who reside in in the depths of the church's heart, who show forth real holiness in their lives. And that's the saints. So the church is always holy because of the saints, and especially because of Mary. Mary, the mother of the church, is right in the heart of the church, and she's always there. And so we really have to love and respect. Never take each other for granted. And that goes you know, from clergy to laity. The laity have to be respectful towards the clergy, even though they're very fallible and they make mistakes and then and there's sins and all that kind of stuff. But the sins of the the clergy, it, it just it can't take away from the actual respect that we need to have towards the clergy. But then, vice versa as well, uh, the clergy have to always respect and love the laity and never take them for granted. Never be disrespectful, treat them like babies, or boss them around, or be mean, or anything like that. So next time Father Walter is mean to you, you let me know. I'm okay. I'm going to get him. So it's the same, it's the body of Christ. You're the body of Christ. And every priest has to have that in his heart, that when you're dealing with a person that you're ministering to who's a member of the church, you're dealing with the body of Christ. The same kind of respect that you would have for the Eucharist, you should have for the people of God and for that individual person that you're dealing with. And of course, I myself and many priests don't always live up to that perfectly, but today is an opportunity for us to remember that, that kind of reverence that we have to have for the church just the same reverence that we have for Our Lady.